0: Greeting, friends. This is again Mordecai Joseph. We are now in Lesson 55 and in the book of Ezekiel in Chapter 16. In this uh, chapter, we're going to read about the way God thought about his own wife, the children of Israel, the people of Israel from the beginning, from the time that he, that he brought them out of uh, the land of Egypt, and in essence, he's even going back uh, beyond that to the time where even Abraham, though he's not mentioning his, him by name, but he's going to the real beginning of the city itself. And he's describing the beginning of the city with its Canaanite uh, and Amorite uh, background. And then later on and it became the city uh, of David. Uh, much later on. But he's in essence describing the city. And he's using the city as a symbol of the nation. And he's going back to the land of Egypt. And to the beginning of the nation and the state in which, that is, the spiritual state in which the nation was. The people of God. The wife of God. And so, we are reading here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you're going to see, with all the horrible things that he's saying about his church, about his people, about his wife, Yet, nevertheless, he will never reject them. And people always ought to remember that from that point of view. And many people, when they saw a lot of the condemnations of God, especially when he came in the flesh, when he spoke against his people, when he spoke against the Pharisees, and against the scribes, and against the Sadducees, they said, you see, he hated them. He couldn't get away from them, and he just uh, it's as if that he wanted to die so he just can get rid of them and marry someone else. Well, that's the way human beings think, but not God. Now That's total ignorance to begin with. And so in chapter 16, we're go- going to read the whole story, and we're going to see the end also, in spite of all the evil that he's going to describe about them. And so in, verse 16, in chapter 16, verse 1, this is what we read. Again, the word of the Eternal came to me, speaking about Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, that is, the nation, the people. And mind you, this is done in the days of, uh, of the captivity of Judah, while they're going through it. And the first part of it uh, was already happening, or happened, and Ezekiel found himself in that first captivity, where a small number of the nobles, and, uh, like Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that is, his friends, Uh, were taken to captivity to Babylon and this is where he finds himself uh, at this point and this is where God is speaking to him so the emphasis is mainly on Jerusalem but again uh, Jerusalem and Judah are and especially Jerusalem the symbolism is there for the whole nation not only for one group of people and so this is what he's saying to him son of man and that's again what he called himself also when he came later on which means Ben Adam that's what it means son of man it's Ben Adam and uh, Adam is, by the way, I uh, mentioned that before that, is applicable to both men and women. Both were called Adam. And so it says, Son of man, Son of Adam, uh, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus is the eternal God, that is, Jehovah Elohim, to Jerusalem, to the entirety of the nation, to his wife, to his people. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And he's speaking specific about the city itself. And, and, and the people that lived there at the time. He's not saying that the Amorites and the Hittites were the forefathers of Israel. But he's talking about the city and then he's going to switch to the nation. And verse 4. As for your nativity on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut. nowhere were you washed in water to cleanse you. They we were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. In other words, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, though they had the sacrifice of the Passover, it was not the time when he atoned for their sins. They were still yet in their sins and the rebellion. It was only later on when he came in the flesh and died for them that he washed them with his blood, and then the terminology to be washed by the water and blood and fire came later on because of that. But that's what he's talking about. Israel was still a sinful nation. Because God did not pay the penalty for them. He didn't die for them yet. And that was the God that became their husband. And was going to do it. Verse 5. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. So, he's using the analogy for baby, and of course, that's just an analogy, you can go only that far. And so, you have to understand it from that point of view. In verse 6, And when I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood, in sin, that is, in iniquity, and I said to you, in your blood, leave. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, leave. In other words, I offered you life. I offered you myself. Verse 7, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. And notice the language that God is using, a physical language, an intimate language, and of course it's still an analogy, so it can go only that far with it. But understand the mind and the heart and the emotions and the feelings of God, they're not defiled and polluted like those of men. So people feel differently when they read this terminology. And if you have the mind of God, you would not feel that way. Or react that way. And so he says, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew, speaking about the pubic hair, but you were naked and bare. And he's speaking, in essence, about the glory of the nation, uh, the beauty of the nation, uh, because breasts is where uh, mothers uh, used to, to feed their children. So he's talking about uh, economically uh, the nourishing aspect of the nation. And verse eight, and when I passed by you again, and I looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. In other words, marriage. You were ready for marriage. You were sexually mature. So I spread my wing over you. That is my cloth, my garment, and that was symbolic an idiom for uh, for going to a woman and then taking her as a wife. And, uh, and uh, that's why later on you read in the book of Ruth when she said to uh, Boaz, "Spread your wing over me, your cloth." You know that was symbolically okay. I'm going to take you to me as my wife. And so that's what he's saying. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. That is a marriage covenant. And he swore to her. As he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he's he's taking this whole analogy from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the covenants and the promises and then bring them out of Egypt and then bring them to Mount Sinai and making a marriage covenant with them. He's speaking about the whole process. And this whole thing is poetry and metaphors in many ways. And and you became mine, says the eternal God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. In other words, now that I gave you my law, and at that time, uh, to them not having the spirit, it was just to them a letter of the law, because they didn't have the spirit to understand the spirit concept that is behind it. And yet, from the beginning, it was spiritual law. As Paul later on will tell the, the Corinthians, in uh, First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 4, where he told them, I don't want you to be ignorant, although they said, because you are, obviously you are. You don't understand the history of Israel, like mo- all the nations. That is, the individuals of then that came into the church, uh, that were converted, had the Holy Spirit, but they were still in the dark in many ways because they had no background. They were un- unlearned in many ways. And because of that, many of them totally got confused. Uh, later on and, and and went into a totally different religion and became a part of a new religion, a uh, counterfeit religion. But then he told them that the children of Israel went through the uh, through the wilderness and they, they went through the Red Sea and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the water. Uh, that was their baptism. And uh, then they, they ate the spirit, all ate, he said, all of them ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink and followed that spiritual rock and that rock was the one that followed them, the one that was in their midst, Sometimes he went behind the camp, sometimes in front of the camp, you know, on the pillar of fire, on the cloud. And that, Rocky said, was Christ. See, So it's one package. It's one story. There are no divisions there. And people that don't understand that and have no background are un- unlearned, and they're confusing themselves and are being confused and deceived by others and by themselves. you got to read the entirety of the story to understand it. And that's what God is saying here. I, I uh, washed you in water, you know. as the letter only said, I will wash you by, the, wo- by the, uh, you know, the water of the word. Only then it became spiritual, because it, they received the Holy Spirit, so they could uh, see the spirit of the law. And that's, in essence, what God is saying here at this point. I washed you in water, that is, his laws and commandments and statutes and judgments, just to remove all the darkness that was in their mind, all the misconceptions, all the idolatry, all the ignorance and blindness, and yet, thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth, and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, and covered you with silk. And again, he's talking about his law. That's what his law does. That's what the law does to us. The instructions of God. They adorn us. They give us salvation. They beautify us. They glorify us. They give us the mind of God. And that's how God describes it. And when people study about the law of God and then they don't have a proper understanding of it, they don't know what it is. They just think in terms of legalism. And this is a description God gives to His law. And I adorn you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wreath, and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a, and a beautiful crown on your head. And look at the details that God goes through because that's how He describes his, the, the of instructions that He gave them, which is called the Torah. And that's, in one sense, you might say, this is a description of Torah Torah from his point of view, at least at this point. Another point he used it, uh, metaphorically, as the tree of life and the fruit of the Spirit. And he has, you know, many descriptions for it, but this is one of them. Verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, you know, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful. And succeeded to royalty, because he made them a royal priesthood by sanctifying them, as he told them, I am holy, therefore be you holy. And so he gave them instructions, ordinances, statutes, judgments, precepts, how to become holy. And this is what he's describing here in terms of jewelry, and ornaments, and clothing, and silver, and gold, and so forth. And you uh, became exceedingly beautiful and uh, succeeded to royalty. Because that was the royal law. Now that you were attired entirely with the royal law, this is how beautiful you became. And this is what makes us beautiful. And glorified. And beautified. And filled you know, with salvation. And clothed with salvation. And this is what he calls in other places the garment of righteousness. You know, the white garment. And your fame went out among the nations. Because of your beauty. For it was perfect through my splendor. And the splendor that he's talking about is his law, his Torah, which I had bestowed on you, says the eternal God. And people have no knowledge of the law and proper uh, perception understanding of it and appreciation, they don't think about it as the splendor of God yet. That's how God describes his Torah. That's my splendor. That's his nature, his character, his mind, his his personality. And how can people resent it and hate it? They say, I don't want to hear about it. Tell me just about the New Testament and grace. It shows you the ignorance that is in the heart of men and the darkness that is in them. Verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty. Instead of trusting in the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the fear of God, you know, the law of God, you trusted in your own human wisdom, as we still do to this very day. And you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry. So all nations of the earth knew, as Moses told them, when all the nations of the earth will see this wisdom, this law that God gave you, the statutes and judgments and precepts, you know, that I give you this day, uh, which came from God, when they see that, but they said, what a wise nation it is. And that's what God is talking about here. And so he said, uh, you played the harlot. You gave the credit to yourself. And, you know, the wisdom you attributed that to yourself instead of to God who gave it to you. And you poured your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. So he's using it, you know, because she was a wife to him. He was, It was a marriage. He's a husband. She's a wife. So he's describing all of her actions and all that he did for her in human terms, in physical terms, in marital terms. And that's the mind of God. And people who do not have the mind of God and his and their ways are not his ways and their thoughts are not his thoughts and their emotions are not his emotions, they just don't get it. And when they read it, you know, they feel embarrassed by it. Because their mind is polluted. That's why. And you took, and then he said... Uh, Verse 16, you took some of your garments and adorned uh, multicolored high places for yourself, and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images, and played the harlot with them. So he's speaking in specific, but the physical treasures that he gave her, and that's what she made. And uh, the images, male images, is talking about the phallic uh, symbols of the, that was pretty common uh, in those days. Because to them that symbolized to the nations, ignorant nations symbolized life. So they worship life. And they, you know, they, so they use the sexual organs to worship life with. And that's what she did. Even though she knew better. She knew who is the source of it and she should have worshipped him directly. But human beings like to see a physical manifestation of that God, either a man or a statue. And so people do this very day. Look up to a man. Look up to a leader. Look up to a physical organization. Without that, they cannot worship God. They're so limited. And that becomes their God. And you took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my instance, before them, also my food which I gave you, the pastry of the fine flour. And so he goes on and on and on, speaking about all these details. But it's important for us to read it, to see from God's point of view, how he feels about those things, how he sees those things, and how he's angry with his own wife. And yet, the end of the story is totally different than it would have been otherwise had it been a human relationship. And that's what people did not get. I thought in a human relationship, uh, man would say, "Enough is enough, no more, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore, and that's it." And especially if he if he dies, uh, obviously that's the end of the story. And yet God doesn't die; God is alive, even though he may he may sort of sleep for three days and three nights. Uh, his death it uh, puts you know yes it brings an end to the old marriage, the old covenant. But that does not mean that he's not he cannot marry the same person again. That he's alive again because now he died for her. In other words, take every analogy only to a point and not beyond that. And when people take it all the way, like they say, Well Christ died and that's it, that's the end of the marriage because that's what the law says. Yes, that's what the law says about a human being, but God is not a human being. He's not in that category. And a human being would suffered all these humiliations from a wife who you know that category, certainly if he were to be resurrected, he wouldn't marry her again. But with God That's different, and people have to see it from God's point of view, because they don't. They're confused. They think God chose another one instead of them. Well, you don't read the whole story, you get mixed up. And if you think human, you get mixed up. But think like God, and you wouldn't. And so God says uh, all these things about her, and he goes on with the story. And it's a horrible story. And then, God says He's going to judge her because of that. He's going to strip her naked. He's going to take away from, from her all that He had given her. He's going to send her into, into captivity. And she's not going to continue that way. He's going to put an end to it. And she, in essence, not in the position of the prodigal son. You know, she takes the inheritance of, of, uh, from her father. Well, He used that example there because God Himself also compared Himself to a father. So, He's the father of Israel and also the husband of Israel and he's not speaking about the father, about that sent him. And uh, like the prodigal son, which he gave that example, that was the example that he gave. is about his wife, that went astray, and lived among the swine, and ate the corn house, and was hungry and naked and all that, because God sent her into captivity, and she became poverty-stricken. And yet she returned to the father, and he made it very plain, that the father, and he used that as an example is the father himself, that is so waiting for the sinner to repent, to come back, that he's going to run toward him. And yet the other brother could not understand it. And so a lot of nations cannot understand it, that God will take back his, his son, his firstborn. And they complain about it. And they don't like it. And God is using it as an analogy when he came in the flesh. The attitude of the nations against his own people, against his own wife. He didn't give that parable for nothing, just to tell a nice story. And so he's telling them, in, uh, in spite of all the evils they have committed, let's jump forward, because in between we read about all the iniquities, all that they've done, and uh, all the judgment is going to bring upon them, which we've heard many times, and God constantly tells the whole story again and again and again and again. The punishment, their sins and iniquities, and then the punishment, and after that, the redemption. You got to read always the whole story, and people don't. That's why people are so confused. And then they pick up a scripture from here and a scripture from there, and they think that they've got the truth. And they haven't got it. They're still unlearned. And so, after he pours his story, I mean his fury upon them, he still makes it very plain. That's not the end of the story. So let's let's pick up the story, uh, verse 44. And did everyone? quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you like mother like daughter. In other words, the one that he married in Sinai and all those that came from her which he calls their own daughters, they followed in the same line of wickedness, of lewdness, of harlotry, of rebellion, and got punished many times, generation after generation. And yet that's not the end of the story. In verse 45 he continues, you are your mother's daughter. So he's using Jerusalem as the mother, and the people, the nation, the, the the church of God, you know, the Israel of God, the physical Israel, among whom some were spiritual, is uh, the daughter. So that's why she's called the Virgin Daughter of Zion or Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is used as the city. You know, the who and the what—that's the whole question here and in this series: the who, uh, the who, and the what of the Church of God. And so, uh, the what becomes the city which is symbolically the mother of the nation, of all the nation. And uh, when you go to uh, the writings of the New Testament, when Paul speaks about heaven and Jerusalem and the mother of us all, if you don't understand the whole story from the beginning until the end, you really don't know what he's talking about. And that's why you get confused when you come to the end of the book of Revelation and you read about the city being the bride. And you say, well, how can the city be the bride? Well, read the whole story. You'll understand what he's talking about there. And indeed, uh, everyone... Uh, okay, uh, we read that one, like mother, like daughter, and then verse 45, you are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters. Your mother is all the nations around who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite, speaking about Israel, about Jerusalem. And uh, verse 46, your elder sister is Samaria, so speaking about the house of Israel, in contrast to the house of Judah, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and you're younger, and by that time, mind you, Israel was taken already into captivity. So now she was sent back north. Israel, and that is the Sumerian her daughters, and all the tribes were gone. And, it was, and then, uh, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom, and her daughters. So it's using the city as an analogy for the people of Judah and for the entirety of the nation of Israel. And verse 47, you did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. So speaking about Judah, as I said earlier in the previous lesson. That the people of Judah have such kind of a character or kind of a nature where whatever they do, they do it all the way. Either into corruption in destruction, and sinfulness, or into righteousness. And so, when they got corrupt, they got corrupt. More than Israel. More than even Sodom and Gomorrah, as far as God was concerned. Because they too had the Sodomites, so to speak. They had the homosexuals. They had the lesbians. You know, they had all those in, in, in the in the temples that they had. They, they called them the, the sanctified ones. Kedeshim and Kedeshot. Uh, that was a term given to the male, uh, sodomites, and to the female, lesbians today, in modern terminology. And uh, to begin with, in those days, they didn't call them sodomites, they just called them the show, sanctified ones, because that was a temple, uh, you know, the, one of the Babylonian uh, concepts of how to worship God through sex. And so they had may, you know, if you didn't like a woman, you went to a man, if you were a man. And if you were a woman, didn't like a man, you went to a woman. And, and that was the way it is. And Israel had plenty of it, and Judah had plenty of that, an abundance of that. And so said, you were even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. As I live, says the Eternal, your God, verse 48, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Verse 49, look this, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Now people won't think about Sodom and Gomorrah, what is it to think about? Only the sexual sins. That's not the way God looked at it. Look at it always from God's point of view. What is really worse? Verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Pride. This is what turned Lucifer into the devil, Satan. Pride. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Now, when people have a lot of money, and you generally find out that segment of society in that condition, economically well. And so they've got plenty of time to experiment. And they end up, you know, in all kind of places where they shouldn't be. And so that was, from God's point of view, the major iniquity of Sodom. Pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Very successful people. You know, yeah, it was at Beverly Hills, of the area there, you might say. You went through Sodom, you went through Rodeo Drive, in Beverly Hills. Rich people. Fertile land, abundance, lots of idleness. They didn't have to work hard. And because of that, you know, they gave their minds to debauchery and uh, indulgence and everything. Everything conceivable. Instead of being, you know, poor people and farmers and busy with their work, uh, they were busy doing other things because they had plenty of money. Plenty of riches. And so she said, He said uh, about Sodom, that was her problem, pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Social problems, social iniquities. Some had plenty, and many didn't, and they didn't care about them. And that's why God totally destroyed that land, not only because of of, uh, the sexual sins of the land, which I was a part of it. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, because of that, God said, I took them away as I saw fit. And mind you, he did not even uh, mention uh, sexual uh, uh, sin here uh, plainly, though he says committed abomination included that too. But the main emphasis was on pridefulness of food, abundance of idleness, arrogance, haughtiness, not, not taking care of the poor. And then verse you, 51, Samaria did not commit half your sins. In other words, Judah did twice as much. Judah always did that way. And the second temple was the sin. And when Christ came on the scene, that's where they were. You see? And uh, nowadays also, they're just as bad as they can be, and they're getting worse and worse. They're even getting worse than the nations among them, around them. Not all of them, but many do. And so even the city today is called Sodom and Egypt. But then he's speaking not only about well, the people themselves, because most of the people of uh, Jerusalem are religious people anyway. So he's not talking about them, uh, even though partly you know they're confused spiritually speaking. But they are not in that uh, kind of uh, immoral uh, state of mind. Uh, this time he's talking more about the spiritual state of that territory of uh, Jerusalem, that is East Jerusalem, today it's called East Jerusalem, but that was the, the, the,
1: the, the
0: entirety, uh, more or less, of, of all the religions of the earth, there, and that makes it spiritually. That's why he said spiritually called, he's not talking about physically, You see, so he's not speaking about the same iniquities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's speaking about spiritually it is called Sodom and Gomorrah, spiritually, he's speaking about spiritual sins, and that's because all the religions of the earth are represented in that small territory there there he's not talking only about Jews. Uh, he's talking about the whole Babylonian system of all the religions. And that includes Christianity, that includes uh, Islam, that includes Judaism, that includes everything else. They're all mixed up, spiritually mixed up. And so God regards them as, as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And mind you, since the emphasis he put on Sodom and Gomorrah is not the sexual uh, orientation that they had, but in specific pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness... And they don't care about the poor and all that. So, take all those things into consideration when, when you uh, read those scriptures. And see it from God's point of view. And so he said, uh, Samaria did not commit, verse 51, half your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. In comparison to you, they were righteous, so to speak. And verse 52, You judge your sisters, bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. And that's the way it works. If somebody is more wicked than the other person, the other person becomes, by analogy, more righteous. Yes, be disgraced also, and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. I they were good, they just they weren't as bad. When I bring back after all that, after all the wickedness and the abominations of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Samaria, of Judah, which was twice as bad, is that the end of the story as far as God is, you know, is concerned, as far as God is concerned, as far as the husband is concerned? The God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, the Savior of Israel, the one that came in the flesh and died for them so he can take them again to him? Now is a bride without spots and blemishes? And that's what the story is all about, as you read really later on by the writings of the disciples. And people that had no background don't know what they're talking about. And so, verse 53, he's explaining When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, not since they're all and had been decimated, Sodom and Gomorrah, what is he talking about? The second resurrection. And the captives of Samaria, they too were all dead, and her daughters. Only in their case, uh, the descendants are not dead. That generation is dead. So, it's going to bring back, uh, in the case of Sodom, they're going to have to wait until the second resurrection. But in the case of Samaria, since the descendants are alive, therefore, it's going to bring them his coming, which is the first resurrection. And the generation that died at that time, and the people that died at that time, then it's going to bring them in the second resurrection. So, it's combining these two into one event here. But you have to understand. That's why it says the wise shall understand. You've got to read the whole story and then you get it properly. And people get confused when they don't have enough knowledge and understanding. They are unlearned. And so it says, And the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back of your captivity among them. So you too is going to be brought back. Judah, that is a generation. But God regarded them as very, very evil people. Much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, and even Samaria, twice as much. And yet, even then, making it very, very plain, God never rejects His people, no matter what, no matter how far they went. He knew they would go that far. He saw it. You know, He could have killed all of them before they got to that point, but He did not choose to. And yet, since He was going to atone for them and give His life for them and, and wash them with the, the, His own blood, so to speak, and uh, Ransom them from death and corruption, from sin, and he's going to bring them back to himself. Therefore, he knows the whole story from the beginning until the end, and we should read it always from his point of view, and not be deceived, not be in at Babylon. And verse 64: that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sisters, Sodom, and her daughters returned to their former estate, that is after the second resurrection, and you see what happened in the meantime? People came up with the doctrine of the heaven and hell. And as far as they're concerned, all the children of Sodom and Gomorrah are still burning in, uh, in heaven. Uh, that is, I'm sorry, burning in hell. You know, screaming and yelling and shouting all this time. And it's all lies, lies, lies. Lies of Babylon. And all those members of Christianity and members of Judaism believe this lie. And that's vomit. God is far, far, you know, as far as God is concerned. That's lies, deception. There's no such a thing. They're all buried. They're in the ground. They've been incinerated. You know, they became ashes. And God will give them life again. Restore their spirit to them and give them a physical body to begin all over again. And this time, do it right. And so He says, "When I bring uh, the captivity of uh, Sodom and her daughters, and when they return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters return to their former estate." And there he's talking about the second and the uh, first and second resurrection, since their descendants are alive, in contrast to those of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the others. Then you and your daughters will return to your former state. And all the other prophecies, we know when that time is. When it's coming, first time. And then those who died later on in Ezekiel 37 is speaking about the second resurrection. And people that don't know that confuse both. And the Jews are totally ignorant about that, and they confuse the, the second resurrection, in Ezekiel 37, with the coming of Christ. Well, That is, with the coming of the Messiah. They don't call him Christ. They call him the, you know, the, the, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior. You know, Savior and Christ, anointed, you know, the Messiah means Christ. And Savior means Jesus. It's all the same. But people who are ignorant don't know the difference. Verse 56, For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride. So you see what the major problem of Judah? Pride. They were pretty successful at the time. They were not poor. They had abundance. They had plenty. Just like today. Israel is a mighty nation in the Middle East. A great power. And the nations of Israel are awesome and mighty in their economic power. And they are full of pride. And because of that, there's social injustices. And along with it, sexual sins, immorality. All goes together. So it says, So, your sister Sodom was not a byword, verse 56, in your mouth in the days of your pride. That was her problem, the major problem. Uh, Before your wickedness was uncovered, it was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria. That is Aram, you know, northern uh, kingdom uh, to Israel, to this very day, Syria. Same people. And all those around here. And of the daughters of the Philistines, who despise you everywhere. And they still do to this very day. And you have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the eternal. You paid for it. For thus says the Lord God, the eternal God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despised the oath, the oath that is of the marriage covenant, by breaking the covenant. You despise that marriage. And therefore God put an end to that marriage. And he died. And he atoned for the sins of Judah and Israel. And he's going to remarry them now. Verse 61 Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters. Speaking about Jerusalem, you know, the symbol of the whole nation, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. In spite of all that, speaking about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. In spite of all that the nation of Israel had done against God, both Samaria, the northern kingdom, symbol of the northern kingdom, and Judah, who was twice as bad, in spite of all of that, God never rejected his people. And all those who say otherwise are liars. Children of the devil, in that lie, if not in others. And we should not be children of Satan children of lies. You know, the father of lies. We believe lies and God tells us, get rid of those lies. Vomit them out. Come out of Babylon. You that bear the the vessels of the eternal. We who hear the Holy Spirit should not allow ourselves to walk around with this lie in our mouth and speak lies and teach lies and practice lies. God says very plainly to those very people and he describes them in detail. That's why I read this whole thing. You know, God is not hiding those things and and we should not hide all those things, the evil, the good, you know, in other words, the bad and the ugly. This is what the grace of God is all about. In spite of all this evil, God is going to wash them away. But also command them to repent and to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit and to be obedient. And so he says in verse 62, And I will establish my covenant, my marriage covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the eternal. I am Jehovah. Now you don't. All this time you haven't known that. That's why you walked in, in such abominations and worshipped idols and did all those evil things. Verse 63. That you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore as the people of Judah have done all this time. They opened their mouth too much and spoke against God and debated with God and argued with God even in person and spoke evil of Him. Because their eyes were blind. They didn't see. They were in darkness. But did God reject them? Never. Did his death put an end to this relationship? Never. God makes it very plain. Who is going to call God a liar? That he's going to make a covenant with them in spite of all that. A marriage covenant. You know. As we read. Jeremiah 31.31. And Paul made it very plain in the New Testament. That is called, you know, the book that is called the New Testament by some people. We don't understand properly as as it should. He made it very plain. The book of Hebrews, again, mentioned the same very words of Jeremiah. Well, God is going to make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. His wife, as bad as they were, marriage covenant with them and no one else. Only one wife. The rest are going to be Children. And the people that will join that wife among the nations, the Gentiles, are the few that were grafted. But all the rest are not going to join that marriage. They're not going to be a part of that church. Because the church of God means the wife of God. To are synonymous, all the rest will become the children. And verse 63. That you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done says the eternal God. How plain can that be? What do you think was the the atonement goat on the Day of Atonement all about? And the Passover sacrifice and the Lamb, which symbolized Him. And both symbolized Him. And so He told them in advance, from the days of of, of the desert, from the days of Egypt, told them that the Passover, then in the wilderness He told them that the goat... That was sacrificed for the eternal. To symbolize his death for his wife. Not somebody else. Only. You know, he didn't die only for the world. First for his wife. Because it's through the wife that is going to bring many sons to glory. And all the nations of the earth will come through that marriage. That was always the emphasis, the center, the core. And people who do not read the whole story are absolutely ignorant. And don't know and are unlearned and don't understand. And so they say what they say. They yes, are sincere, they are good people, they are devout, you know. Many of them are much better in behavior and conduct and morals than the people of Israel, the people of Judah. You know, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom unto this very day. But that doesn't make them right. They're still children of Babylon. Children of ignorance and of darkness. They don't see God's way. They don't understand the grace of God. That it is given to the sinner... That thing only about themselves as a sinner that totally forget about the people of God. God doesn't forget about his people. He said, I wrote you on my palm on the palms of my hand, I engraved you on the palm of my hand. I will never leave you in spite of all that you've done to me, even killed me. And if people are not willing to have an ear to hear, and eyes to see, and heart to understand, even though you tell them. You know, you told me about it, and I have to wonder how many people are going to listen to all this and still reject it, and deny it, and blaspheme against it, and speak evil of it. And so, oh, that Jew, you know, that Mordecai the Jew, whatever. Uh, that's his. Some people used to say in the past, well, that's Joseph, Mordecai Joseph vintage. I'm not speaking. God is speaking. I'm just narrating what is in here, and you can read it with your own mouth. You know, that he read it with your own uh, lips, yes, and hear it with your own ears as you read it, it's there in your own book, on your own lap any, any you know version you have any text, any translation it's all the same, more or less a few little minor details God makes it very plain that you may, verse 63 well, verse 62 that I will establish my covenant with you then you shall know that I am the eternal because you're going to know me intimately, personally, we're going to be married that's how God never forsook them, never gave up on them, no matter what. See, it doesn't depend on us. If it depended on us, you know, if it depended on our righteousness, we'll all be dead. So never take it from that point of view, from us, from our point of view, always from the point of view of God. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, or else even the most righteous of us will have been dead long ago and stay dead. So look at it from God's point of view, and people who do not know God speak that way. The thing they do, they know partially. They know about him. They know some some uh, thing about him. They know partially about him. But when you really know God, through all that—the good, the bad, and the ugly—then you really come to know God. And that's what God says he's going to tell His people. Now you're going to really know Me. How graceful I am. How patient I am. How loving I am, in spite of you. And so that's what he says to them, verse 63, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Eternal. When you go to, let's say, in Zechariah 12 and 14, you read about the coming of Christ and that he's going to open a door for them and he's going to offer them grace and supplication and forgiveness and atonement and cleansing of blood and, and all that. And that's to the first a coming generation where he comes and gives it to them because the descendants of Judah and of Israel are still alive and then he's going to bring the rest of Israel and forgive all of them and cleanse them and purge them and purify them and then the second resurrection all those Israelites who ever lived is going to give them forgiveness and to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the nations of the face of the earth nobody is in hell and nobody is in heaven and the wife of God has never been rejected was, is and will always be the wife of God. Even death cannot separate. Because the death of the man well the man is dead and that's it, he's gone. But God, it's a different story. He died and rose. See? He didn't die and that's it. He stayed there. No, he died and rose. And then he renewed the covenant. He began to renew the covenant. We feel at the time. We were all Israelites. The entirety of that group at the time. For a long time were all Israelites, every single one of them. And then few were added, grafted, Cornelius, some of the Samaritans, and then other nations, and Paul was sent to them. But only few. And that's what Paul told them. You in time passed were the Ephesians. You were Gentiles. And because you were Gentiles and you were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel, you had no hope, no God, no promises, no covenant, Nothing. Gentiles had absolutely no hope until they come through Israel, become a part of the commonwealth of Israel, and that's speaking only about few, not the nations, only few that have been grafted, individuals throughout the generations. But the nation, the people, the wife is Israel, and will be always. And then, through that marriage, as at the end of the book you read, and the spirit and the bride say, come... Now the door is open for all nations to come and be converted. And that's the story from the beginning until the end. And so, you always have to look at it from that point of view. Read it from the point of view of God, the way he described it. And that's why I went through it in detail. And you can read other things. And you can read in, uh, in Ezekiel 23 also. I don't think I'll go through that. Uh, there is too much information. But basically, there is speaking about both Samaria and Judah, which both from Egypt were sinful and corrupt and polluted and defiled. Yet, nevertheless, God says he's going to bring them back and make a new covenant, a new marriage covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why do people read that and reject it? Willfully reject it, blinding themselves, even though they read it, black and white, so to speak. Well, at this time we shall stop and continue next time. Until then, this is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the worldwide website at address www. Dot Bible study dot org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions. The Bible has answers.